Today's episode brought to you by Gnawbone Studios. Show, don't tell. We have Lee Goldberg back in the house. Look Great to be back. I've brought out the good china for you guys. <laughs> well, I'm drinking wine for you, Lee. Uh, I'm still <laughs> waiting for my new crew reviews back or a crystal glass. Mm. Oh, yeah. us too. We'll get it there. We'll get there. <laughs> you're a three-timer now. You're like, it's like when Tom Hanks used to go on Saturday Night Live and they'd announce how many times he's been on. You're you're fast becoming our Tom Hanks. Yeah, where's my bathrobe with the <laughs> monogram? Where is it? We should, slippers. We should definitely send you one. Yeah. You should. And the slippers. But hey, so Lee, uh, Eve Ronan, she's back this time in she's uh, back. Gated Prey, which hits bookstore, bookshelves and bookstores October 26th. So would you mind giving us a peek into what mess Detective Ronan finds herself in the middle of now? Yeah. Well, these books, Lost Hills, Bone Canyon, and now Gated Prey, actually take place over just a short period of weeks. So her life yeah. hasn't changed too much. She's still got the wounds from her previous case and isn't a whole lot smarter than she was in the previous <laughs> books. So she's coming to this with some, with some baggage. And she's in an undercover operation in a gated community in the hopes of catching some home invaders. And the uh, the surveillance operation goes horribly, horribly wrong. Mm, that sort of gets us into, into the story. I want to do something different from the other books. Instead of ending with big action, I thought it'd be fun to start with some big action. Yeah. And have the ramifications of that. Yeah. yeah you started with uh, literally a bang. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which was pretty cool. Um, so Eve, she center stage in not one, but two high profile robbery, homicide investigations. And you intertwine those two investigations very nicely. But I'm curious, from a writer standpoint, did you always envision both of those plots? Or did you have the one and be like, ah, I need something else and bring bring the other part? Actually, I had three plots. And uh, just got to be too unwieldy to have all three plots in there. And I pulled the third one out. Um, I, really? I, I wanted to have more going on in her life than just one case, because that's the way it really is. I mean, the right. books, they, they get to mm-hmm. narrow focus on one case as if they have no other responsibilities. But I wanted to show Eve had other things going on besides just the A case, so to speak. But I also wanted to show how the A case could become the B case and the B case could become the A case. They could kind of, you know, move around depending on, on developments in each and also how something seemingly ordinary could be something extraordinary not in a good way but how, yeah, not only not only does she have that she's got the renovations going on in her house yes what's going on renovations going on <laughs> oh yeah well that's the real story i mean what's bigger in anyone's life than home renovations oh my gosh <laughs> take a look over here or the worst yeah we're about to replace every single window in my house i'm going to be out of town for that or at least i'm going to try that's to be okay. yeah that's so. a smart move <laughs> Lee, one of the things I love about Eve's arc, and I know, like you just said, it, it's right now, it's, it's not much of an arc because she's, this is a very compressed period of time, but there's a one step forward, two step back in both her personal decision making, um, her professional journey, navigating the politics, the sexism, the jealousy, and all the other obstacles at work. And yet she is making progress. But um, all of that gives a serious strong sense of verisimilitude. And how do you balance maintaining all the dramatic conflict and all the problems she faces with allowing her the, the small victories and then the triumph in the end in a way that both satisfies the reader, but never comes off as contrived because you do it master. When I, when I first conceived this series, this character, I wanted her to be imperfect. I wanted her to have some instinctive skills, some natural talent, but uneducated in a way inexperienced she's in a job she doesn't deserve she has the talent but not the experience or the skills yet and she's not harry bosch yet she's not john rebus she'll get there maybe in in a few years but right now she's raw talent and i like that i like seeing her make mistakes but she's also smart enough to learn from them so by the time gated prey comes along she has solved two 
pretty serious homicide investigations and has learned from her successes and failures in those investigations. And those failures are still haunting her in this book and will continue to haunt her in the, in the fourth book, which is coming out in June of 2022. And she has the physical injuries that, that she sustained yeah. in those cases. So mm. she'd be a complete idiot if she didn't learn something from her mistakes, but she wouldn't be human if she became perfect. So she is still a flawed character. And that keeps me interested as a writer. It, it helps me plot. It, it helps me explore her character to know there's so much more room for her to grow. And I like it when I get angry with her. <laughs> when, when she does things that are like, would you just think for one second, you know, or, or stop and, and rest so you can clear your yeah, head. And yeah, get face. some sleep. Yeah, she, stop being, and in a way, her, her partner, Duncan Pavone, the older, more experienced cop who's weeks away from retirement, in some ways is my voice and the audience's voice saying, hey, yeah, you're gifted, but God, you're irritating. I get a kick out of, I get a kick out of some of the reviewers on Amazon. And it's funny, I don't read them. My wife reads them to me. I think she gets some pleasure out of reading me the criticism. <laughs> um, who say, do her voice. Do her voice. Do your wife's voice. What do you mean do my wife's voice? Her voice is completely not. Uh, no, my uh, wife will say, there are, some, there are some people on Amazon who think you suck. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Please tell me more. Well, since you asked, I'll, I'll read them to you. <laughs> the heroine is irritating, just like the author. Okay, they did not say that, but I know from personal experience. You know, in any case, um, my wife is not Inspector Cluzo, but <laughs> there are some reviewers on, excuse me, my voice cracked there. I just did positive oh, imitation puberty. Um, puberty, thank you. Todd. He does look young. He does look much yeah, younger. He must he does. Does um, look younger. There, there are some readers who criticize Eve for not being perfect. She keeps making mistakes mm. and she irritates me because she doesn't realize she's making the mistakes. Good. That's good. I don't want a hero or a heroine or a protagonist who's perfect because that's a real bore to write and creates no conflict along the way. And from conflict, you get drama and you get humor. And that's the other thing I'm going for. I want that balance between the drama of the situation and the humor of the situation. Because I've, as I've said in on this show many, many times, what? there's humor in even the worst situations. And I find it unrealistic when I read books that are humorless. Yeah. Well, one, one other thing you that about the plots, and, and, and it's not the plots, but about her life, is that there are obstacles she overcomes, but she didn't overcome them for good. And, and yes. that's what, you know, like she might overcome sexism this one time, or she might overcome envy this one time, but it's still there, it's still there lurking. And I, I've, I've read fiction where, you know, somebody conquers some, this little hill and, oh, that's never a problem again. You know, now I've, nobody's going to be sexist to me anymore. They're just going to accept the fact that I'm a badass female detective. And I, I like that cyclical aspect to the conflict in her life. And I think it, it plays very well. Yeah. What, what amuses, what one thing that amused me was in the second book, Eve gets a piece of advice from someone who turns out to be a bad guy. But his advice was actually really good. <laughs> and so she's being reminded of that, I think, in Gated Prey and certainly in, in the fourth book coming out of that advice. And she's like, I got that advice from a, a corrupt cop. Yes, but it's still good advice, Eve. You should pay attention yeah. to it. Yeah, right. And that is, she gets so focused on, on what she thinks the solution of the case is that she becomes blind to other clues that are there. And she finds them out too late to her own detriment. Right. Or, or she pushes herself so hard and is so relentless that she's too tired or too, too focused in an odd way to, to see the things that she's missing. She eventually does, but still, she might have gotten there earlier if she just relaxed, you know, having that. I mean, youthful, it's a youthful thing, though. But you can only do it for so long before you burn yourself out. Burn out. Yeah. yeah. Duncan warns her about Well, that. in the opening chapters, there's a chase uh, that ends in a store where Eve confronts an armed man who was then shot and killed by a security guard. Um, and it would have been simple enough to just leave it at that. But you seem to take great pains describing the likely emotional and psychological toll after the fact of the event on the guard. Mm -hmm. So was this a decision based on any cases that you had uh, seen reviewed or, or research within the law enforcement community? All of the, Eva, all of them, there's been three, but in each, in each <laughs> book, there's been one or two cases. All of the Ronan novels are based on real events. Mm -hmm. So the home invasion robberies is something that are actually happening here in Calabasas or were. 
And the uh, the shootout in the grocery store, my inspiration was a similar shootout that happened at a Trader Joe's here in downtown Los Angeles um, a year or so ago. Hmm. And there's another story about a, a premature birth. I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. But that was a case I actually learned about at a homicide investigators training conference. And for that case, I interviewed everybody who was involved in the in the prosecution and investigation of that case, and I fictionalized it for for Calabasas. So everything is based in truth. And um, the gated community where everything takes place, or at least the A case takes place, is my gated community yeah. and my house. <laughs> so I, I didn't have to go far to research how the how the community looked. And the grocery store that said is is my grocery store. I mean, it was the pandemic. So I made it very easy on myself. I will set the story in my own front yard, <laughs> literally. So I said, I have to go research the book. Where are you going? Front yard. What? <laughs> in the driveway, look at my street, look down at the gate. To the gatehouse and, yeah. and talk to the guards, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Eve Ronan, and we love her as a character, and we, we've, we were talking about that off air before, uh, but she's a bull in a china shop, both in her personal and professional life, even if there's not that much of a difference right now. Um, and she's stubborn. He really doesn't like to take, listen to or take advice, especially from uh, her partner, Duncan, who's got, you know, like we talked about just before, a couple of weeks away from retiring. So he's got all this experience. But in a weird way, that makes her character more likable, at, le at least to me. So when you were creating her character, was that always her defining trait? Yes, her defining trait is that she's relentless, utterly focused on what she's doing and eager to prove herself. And that her greatest strength is also her greatest weakness. In fact, that was true of even the Monk character when I was doing TV series Monk and the Monk books. Monk's greatest weakness is his OCD. It's also his greatest strength. It's his, his obsessive compulsive problem is what gives him this eye for detail that he, miss, that he catches everything everybody else misses. And Eve, because she's inexperienced, she doesn't walk into a crime scene with all these preconceptions because she hasn't been on that many crime scenes. Right. Hmm. And, and she's not so concerned about her self-image that she's that she's afraid to ask questions that reveal her stupidity or lack of knowledge because she's more afraid of screwing up because she doesn't know something so that's very appealing to me and i don't want to lose that in her character in some ways i dread the day when i'm at book number 10 i should be so lucky mm. she's got so much experience that um she's too confident and, and gets too many things right i i, I don't I don't want to rush her to the day of being Harry Bosch or, or John Rebus or one of these other detectives who really are confident that they know what they're doing and everybody else is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I also, what's important to me is to keep her human. I am so tired of these characters who are haunted by the serial killer who murdered their family or you know some other horrible thing in their past. And they have all these broken marriages and they're alcoholics and, and they're loners. Eve is a loner, but she has a big family and they're a yeah. big part of her life. And I want that to be a continuous thing. And I don't want her haunted by what she's done in the past. I mean, she's haunted by her mistakes. Like she kicked herself. How could I have overlooked this or that? But she's not waking up in a cold sweat every night thinking about you know, the hillside strangler who mm -hmm. she put away or whatever. <laughs> Well, Lee, we know enough about you from previous interactions to know you have strong women in your life, um, in, your, in your wife, who is not Inspector Clouseau, and your daughter, <laughs> as well as two sisters, and I'm sure many others. How you know, much of my mistress? And it, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the secret family I don't tell anyone about. Yeah. Well, how, how much of Eve is from them, and how much input do you receive from them about how you portray her? That's interesting. Most of my family doesn't read me very much <laughs> oh, oh you write books um but i don't think my daughter who's 26 has ever read anything i've written my oh, wife man. does read the eve ronan novels and likes them quite a bit yeah um i think eve is a mixture of my daughter and my mom and and actually a lot of the strong women in my life she really is my mom is very much a character in the eve ronan novels because she's eve's mom yeah. right that that the woman that that, that 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 character is my mom the and phone calls the conversations are very funny <laughs> it's, it's very easy to to write that character i just channel my mom and, that's awesome uh, 
but I, I do it with less bitterness than my brother. And that's not a slight. I mean, Todd <laughs> and I have both made a lot of money off of uh, caricaturing our mother in our fiction. <laughs> that in a lake, right? Isn't there some kind of lake that you guys all put in? Yeah, Loon Lake. And, and in fact, um, yeah. you guys wouldn't because you're not crazy. But eagle-eyed readers of my books, and there's like three of them, um, <laughs> who've read everything I've written. I actually have a character from one of my earlier books, speaking of Loon Lake, make a cameo appearance in Gated Prey. Mm. That, was, that was fun. I wonder who that's going to be. Uh, Eve's fi- family dynamic um, it kind of gives us a peek into what makes her tick and her own personality. And it's very different than her siblings and her mom. So kind of riffing off what Sean was talking about is which character in the book reflects one of your siblings? Um. I don't think any of them do. Yeah? No. I, well, maybe a, to a degree. I have a sister, Karen, who's um, two years younger than me, and, and she's a mother and a lawyer, and she's she's very maternal towards everybody in the family. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, that might be Eve's sister, um, the nurse. But no, I don't think the, the, um, the siblings reflect members of my family. On the other hand, Eve's mother is very much my mother. And Eve's father, to some degree, is my dad. Um, Hmm. Eve's father is an itinerant TV director who knocked up every woman he came into contact with. (laughs) And my father was not that. (laughs) that. But my father was a television anchorman. Right. Right. And always, I've done this impression on your show before. Yes. But my father always talked like this, with the same insincere smile on his face that I have right now. And always talk like this, no matter whether he was on camera or just sitting in your living room. (laughs) That same fake laugh. (laughs) So my father was in the media. He was very aware of cameras being on him, even when they weren't. So having Eve's father be an absentee father, who was also in the entertainment industry, allows me to draw on on some of that myself, because my father wasn't around much when I was uh, growing up either. So Eve, in some ways, is me and that she's got this difficult relationship with her, her mother and her estranged father. And when she becomes a success, they both re-enter her life, trying to glom onto that success. And that happened to me to a degree as well. So I am able, in the midst of a crime novel and with some humor, to exercise some of my own demons. Because it is true, I think, the best fiction, to some degree, comes from ourselves. So I do mine some of my own life experiences as weird as it may seem in the Eve Ronan books, it's more obvious to maybe my brother Todd or my, my wife when I do that, but beyond the actual on the nose stuff, like setting gated prey pretty much in my house on my street. um, It's fictional. Uh, I'm not, I've never been a police officer and and I've haven't been a woman for quite some time. So. Or, or you've only, you've been a woman for only a short, short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) it's okay have the adam's apple removed <laughs> so lee there there's uh going back to the book there's an uh an autopsy scene in gated gated prey that is it's pivotal to the story what i found interesting is that it was more technical than gory or unpleasant and i've, I've been through a couple autopsies um and you mentioned in your acknowledgments that you learned of a similar real life uh case during a homicide investigators training conference for law enforcement professionals a How'd you get invited to that conference? And two, would you recommend to authors new and established to attend similar conferences if they can weasel their way into it? I got invited. Well, in a way, all writers can. There's a a program called the Writers Police Academy that's held in Green Bay, Wisconsin this year. And it's held at an actual law enforcement training center. Hmm. All these law enforcement professionals will walk writers through a, a very brief version of actual police academy training. You will shoot guns, you'll drive on a police range, you'll learn how to do a pit maneuver, you'll learn interrogation techniques, it, you'll dust for fingerprints, you'll examine blood evidence. It's fantastic. That's pretty cool. Absolutely fantastic. Nice. And I was attending that a few years ago, and I met a guy who runs these homicide investigator training conferences. And he approached me and said, you would love the conferences we do to train cops. I said, yes, I would, but I can't get into them. (laughs) Well, you could if you knew the guy who runs the program. (laughs) Ah, There it is. So, you know, he he got me in. And, you know, I stand out there 
quite a bit because all these guys, you know, you're, you're in the secret service and all that. You, you know that even when you're not wearing the gun and the badge, you still have the aura. Yeah. There are all these guys who have the cop walk, you the cop look. Yep. Then there's me. Hi, I'm Hollywood. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm not, not a law enforcement person. But now that I've been there a few times, they're, they're sort of used to seeing me there. And uh, I make a point of buying lots of drinks. It's all in a hotel. Yes. And so they're all capped. This is before the pandemic, but we're all basically confined to this hotel for three days while the conference is going on. So I'll, basically, I bought every cop there drinks and heard their stories and everything and became friends with them. And I've been using them as, as resources. And this particular case was presented by, I believe, um, two detectives in Minneapolis, if I remember correctly. Um, but there was also a paramedic who'd worked on it who was there. And, and so I, I got all the details of the case. And then, you know, and I quizzed them about it at the time. I didn't know if I'd ever use it, but it was a fascinating case. Then later when I decided to use it, I went to local experts. I went to a coroner here in San Bernardino who was very helpful to me. I went to a first responder here. I went to homicide detectives here just get more details. And I knew without going into too much detail now, how uncomfortable this case would make people to would be, would be for yeah. people to read right. women. And so I wanted to be very careful in getting the forensics right, but not making it so unpleasant to read that it stopped being entertainment and started being something really unpleasant. Yeah. How are you doing? Wow. Well, you, you, you kind of completely ruined my next question. Cause what I was going to say is this is another wonderful character driven thriller and compels you to turn the page but it also has a stop and think quality that comes directly from the setting and the mechanics of the plot. Um, the gated community and, and what it represents to the people that live there, the people who don't live there, like live in apartments like uh, our lovely detective, Eve. Um, and then those who straddle those worlds, you know, the unseen laborers, the service providers. Um, and that dynamic is, is, is a fascinating backdrop. But mm. I was wondering, is there, is there a certain specific message you're 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 sending with this story is it is it as simple as you know monsters are everywhere or is it is it more about is, is there any commentary on the on the class system it's, or it's very simple the monster is us doesn't Monsters. matter whether we're behind one side of the gate yeah. or the other we're the monster and and all the attitudes and 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 desires and 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 everything all the all the warped thinking it doesn't matter whether you have money or don't have money, whether you have a fancy car or a Toyota Corolla, we're all the same. And I guess that's the message. I remember um, my daughter went off to college and she went to a college in the Central California uh, Valley. She went to Merced, UC Merced. And she came back from her first break and said, mom, dad, we need to talk. I thought, oh God, she's pregnant or, you know. <laughs> the rest of the world is not like this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What? Most people don't live behind gates. <gasps> really, honey? I, I turned to my wife, like, did you know that? <laughs> and she went out to the outside world discovery and she met a girl who never owned a coach bag. What? Unthinkable. I, uh, God, what calamity. <laughs> I realize I have done a terrible job as a parent. I've spoiled my daughter. I've or really... you've done a good job. Yeah. Or... We were trying to tell her that for years, you know, that yeah. you're living in a bubble and it's, it's, it's different out there. But I have a friend in this community who is a celebrity and she was selling her house. She wanted somewhere closer to the studios and the Hollywood Hills, but then realized that just anybody could come to your door. And she'd gotten used to the fact that, no one ever knocks on the door by surprise. You know, that, that's the one thing she's really come to you know, respect about being in a gated community. Right. Um, so it's, it is a, a lifestyle change, but then you have HOAs who, and I've been guilty of this, who you can only paint your house a certain color. You have to have certain kinds of plants. You can, it, there's all kinds of regulations. Yeah. A lot of people who are rich and famous or running companies or, or entrepreneurs don't like being told no and how to do things. No, right. you can your reproduction of the statue of David in your front yard. <laughs> you know who I am? Yes, yeah, terrible taste and a lot of money. But. <laughs> um, Eve's personal story uh, in the book is being shopped by her in the book Hollywood agent Linwood Taggart. So my first question is: Is what's the going rate for a life story? <laughs> 
it well it depends how good your agent is. The yeah. the reason I did the TV show thing, I, I did it for multiple reasons. One because I don't have a creative bone in my body and I just keep repeating myself. But second, LA is essentially a giant Hollywood backlot. Yes, we have studios, but our city streets are used to film TV shows and, and cop shows all the time. So there's the Hollywood version of the cop, and then there's the real cop, and there's the real cop trying to be like the Hollywood cop. It's this weird circular thing going on here in Los Angeles where every police officer is aware of the Hollywood version of themselves because it's shooting right outside their door. And what readers and viewers and people they interact with expect them to be because of what they've seen on TV. And there's the fact that every single person is carrying a camera capable of broadcasting you. So whether you're a real cop or not, you be can become a TV cop overnight. So I came up with the idea of this, this heroine who gets her job by virtue of a viral video and then having to deal with the consequences of fame. And then as the series of books goes on, having to deal with the idealized version of herself that Hollywood is creating. So she has to deal with her own self expect her own expectations, the expectations of her coworkers, the expectations of the media, and the expectations of viewers who are coming to know the fictional her and want mm -hmm. her to be that character. And I thought having to deal with all that would just make her more self-aware and more freaked out all the time as, as she becomes more experienced and also more popular at the same time. So she's dealing with this idealized version of herself, the real version of herself, her insecure version of herself, the way other people see her as this backstabbing bitch who has no um, skills to be in her position. It just gave me so much more to play. And because I'm in, I, I also straddle the two worlds of Hollywood and, 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 and books, it gives me a chance also to comment on, on my other career right, and, right. and the world I'm in. And, and then it took on a bizarre quality and it, the actual rights to Eve Ronan are being pursued by Hollywood. So there's a the so possibility cool. that Eve Ronan can become a real TV show at the same time the fictional Eve Ronan is dealing with the fictional TV that, show. That's a whole another book, man. <laughs> yeah, but I guess what I'm looking for here is more for me to play that will keep me interested, that will keep the stories fresh, that will set Eve Ronan apart from all the other police procedurals that are out there. And there are so many so the challenge is keeping this character fresh and keeping each book fresh i don't want this to ever feel like a formula of series of books that okay it's another eve ronan i know exactly what i'm going to get there'll be the big action sequence at the end or this so i try to keep shaking it up so it's not the same formula yeah. every book each book is different in the way the story plays out yeah i thought it's fun it's fun to read about it <laughs> you know it's so funny as you were talking about how uh, the detectives out there you know, see their fictionalized selves. It reminded me uh, in the story, you know, the, there was a big set piece that happens and then Eve's on the phone with her with her mother and her mom's talking about her boob tape yeah. and you should dress more <laughs> like that. And I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it was just cracking me up in my yeah. head. <laughs> I, but also, I, this may be, uh, I can't remember which cop told me this, but, you know, on NYPD Blue, they were carrying the badges around their necks. You yeah. know, fat badges on... Right. And no cop in the world was doing that. It was something the production designer came up with. And cops here start thinking, well, that looks cool. We're going to start I did doing it. that. I did so it. It. <laughs> it, was, it was the TV influencing cops. So and, and you see now, you know, David Caruso with the, you know, with the sunglasses that, you know, it was murder mm. in three acts, whatever. And, and <laughs> now you see cops here walking around with the Ray-Bans and they're very much aware of the television version of themselves and how they'll be perceived on social media. And Eve is just fighting against that in every way yeah. she possibly can. Yeah. And I mean, she only, I don't want to give away stuff, but she, she ends up agreeing to do the TV series only because she wants to have some measure of control over how she's portrayed because she'll be portrayed anyway. And she ends up needing the money, but right. And, but how I, do you, I, in business you know what i liked i like you, you threw in some of the uh the screenplay writing and <laughs> and i was thinking of sean as i was reading that part because he was a screenwriter and i'm just like this is really good and <laughs> but she doesn't like it <laughs> i'm like but it's pretty good she's on the bike like it's pretty cool like that was just cool it was just cool well i'll share, I'll share a secret with you don't tell anybody except everyone who's watching 
Nobody watches this. What I've done with Eve Ronan, and it's, it's something I learned writing the book True Fiction, is I had this story in my head and I was so eager to get it out of my system to find out if it worked. I wrote it as a script first. Oh. to get this, So I can write a script in two or three weeks. Yeah. It takes me several months to write a book. So by getting it out as a script first, just for me, I okay, the story works. And I have the dialogue in me. So now I can go color between the lines. I can expand. And But I found that that works for me now as a great outline. I now have a 120-page script for each of my books. And it, there's, in the, with the exception of True Fiction and Lost Hills, there were scripts that nobody ever saw. My agent did see the Lost Hills script and loved it. And oddly enough, that script has gotten me work, even though I would not be the one to adapt my own book. I would let somebody else with more heat than me um, <laughs> in the industry do it. But it really helps me because I think I mentioned this in one of our other interviews. I wanted to adopt a different voice in my Eve Ronan novels than in my true fiction Ian mm -hmm. Ludlow adventure series. Yeah. I wanted the narrator to become invisible. I wanted to make the yeah. prose disappear. I wanted just enough prose to move the story forward. I wanted the dialogue and action to carry the reader forward like a screenplay. I just wanted the prose to set the scene and tell you the pertinent facts and then get out of the way. That if, if my prose ever drew attention to itself, I had to cut it, which was really hard for me because I like being clever and funny, but I, I, it's hard to take it out of the prose. And if I could, I stuck it in a character's mouth. If I couldn't, I just threw it away. I mean, I put it in a file to use later, but. I don't want readers to ever be aware they're reading. I want them to get so caught up in it that it becomes a, a movie in their head. Mm -hmm. And if I write a clever metaphor or a snarky comment, I think it'll pull the reader out and say, oh, I'm reading a book. That doesn't bother me as much in the Ian Ludlow books, but I didn't want to do them in this police procedural. I want to do a different kind of police procedural. Very little exposition, as we say. Yeah. Um, so let's let's... Let's shift a little bit, and I, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the Disney Must Pay uh, Joint ah. Task Force movement and why it's so important to establish content creators as well as up-and-coming ones uh, to be aware of, uh, of this movement. Well, there's a, a whole type of writing called work for hire, and that's generally when a writer or an artist is hired to adapt something from one medium into another, like taking a game or a movie or a TV show and turning into a book or taking a toy and turning it into a movie. There's an adaptation that's required and they hire writers to do it. Now the writers haven't created the underlying property. They haven't created the, the toy or the movie, mm -hmm. but they are creating original work in the novel or, or the comic book. And when a writer or artist is hired to do this, we sign a contract. And the contract says we'll be paid X amount of dollars upfront and X amount of dollars every time there's a sale. We're owed royalties. And more often than, than, I shouldn't say more often than not, but too often studios basically blow off work for hire writers and don't pay them what they're owed. And in the case of Disney, 20th Century Fox hired a lot of people to do a lot of licensed work. You know, TV show, uh, books based on TV shows and games and, and other stuff that Fox owned. When Disney bought Fox, they did not honor those contracts. They did not pay writers what they were owed for the work that they did. And there were writers who live on those residuals, on those royalties from the work they did. All of us do, in fact. Um, the, the vast majority of most writers' incomes comes not from the upfront payment, but the percentage we get from every sale or viewing or, or ticket our, our work um, in, uh, gets. So by cutting off those royalties, they're putting a lot of people into poverty and putting a lot of people in a desperate situation. So I'm part of this task force of multiple guilds. That they're just asking Disney not to do something exceptional. Just do what you agreed to in the yeah. contract. The yeah, writer did it. You asked the writer to adapt this movie into a novel in 90 days and they did it. They did their job. They, they, they follow the terms of their contract. Do the right thing and follow the terms of the contract that you signed. 
Yeah. And and what really is sickening is there are these giant conglomerates making billions of dollars, and what they owe these writers and graphic artists and and others are nickels and dimes. It's nothing, but it's so small they don't want to be bothered with it. Right. Well, what's small to them is the difference between a mortgage payment for a lot of other people, right, and right. it's just infuriating. I'll you posted an article, and I don't I don't recall which character, what, but there was a. I, I believe it was the character that basically created the multiverse that Marvel is doing. The person who created that character got nothing for the creation of that character. And then it became like the foundation for this huge series of movies. And then that person's not getting anything. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff is mm. now being renegotiated and, and it's a, it's a complicated thing, but yeah. I remember there was a case years ago there was an episode of Star Trek called Space Seat, you know, with Ricardo Montalban. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 20, 30 years later, they made a movie called The Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan. based on that episode and didn't pay that guy who wrote that episode anything. And it became a big issue for the Writers Guild and wow. ended up getting a, a, a token payment of some kind. But this happens all, all the time. Like, um, remember Christopher Lloyd's character in Taxi? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Crazy Jim. Well, Crazy Jim was, that was his name? I think it was Jim. But in yeah. case, he was a character in, a, in one episode that was never supposed to come back again. He became a regular. So mm. the writer who created that character in his freelance episode deserved a character payment for that character. And had Jim ever gone off in a spinoff series or whatever, that writer is owed money for that. So it's... It's very complicated, and for a long, long time, Hollywood just blew blew off people and their creative contributions. Hmm. That's becoming less and less possible now, or at least at least writers are less willing to let that go. They're fighting. Good, good. Well, one other thing that I know it's close to your heart. Tell tell our audience who may not be aware about Brash Books and share anything you want to share about any recent releases from Brash Books. I uh, founded a publishing company, guys, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago with Joel Goldman, another writer. And we have published well over a hundred books. Jeez. The vast majority of them have been reprints of books we loved as, as crime writers or books that we felt got overlooked. But we've shifted more toward original novels and they've been doing, doing very well. We've taken a lot of pride in, in the success of some of our original novels. We've just released two books have been out of print for god 60 years Oof. by john sanford not john sanford of, of the other john novels yeah but a blacklisted writer of, of literary noir fiction from the 1930s that's just exceptional and i'm pleased to say the books just came out a few weeks ago and they're doing great oh nice Publishers weekly gave them a big rave los angeles review of books just wrote a big feature about them and it's great to see that author who's long dead and forgotten getting some of the attention he he most certainly deserves and of course the hard man novels which we republished by uh, ralph dennis um i can't tell you who but a big studio big producers just optioned that series of, of books awesome. so wow hoping that'll become a movie or a tv show it's a shame ralph is not here to see his work finally getting the attention it deserved but Brash Books has really been my way and Joel's way of giving back to all the authors who shaped us as writers. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. It's it's my low-paying hobby. or it's a very expensive hobby. Our writers are making money. Uh, we aren't. But uh... All right. So so from Brash Books, let's go to the lightning round. Oh, uh, let's raise go. the glass, boys. Yes. Lee, Lee's survived the lightning round. Diet Coke. Hey, hey I, I spilled nothing this time. I broke nothing. Dude, show's not over, dude. It's not, not over, over yet. What are you doing? <laughs> I haven't given you a clip yet you can use to humiliate me with my family and the rest of the world. See, oh, see we'll Lee, figure something this is, out. This is the part where we try to elicit that. So get ready. <laughs> Strap in. I've come back considering how hard you guys have tried to tear me down professionally and personally. It's already bad enough my wife won't sleep with me because of you. <laughs> now you're going after my career. Yep. Well, your brother helped too. Yeah. All right. So guys, I'm in your corner, Lee. I don't know what I don't know <laughs> what's happening here. All right. So um speak. It, so we we've been reading so many books lately. 
yeah. I've been doing post-its on, on the books just so I, you know, keep it straight. So then when I write my questions for you, I know what we're, what we're writing about. And, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, lemon drops in, oh, yeah. uh, in this, in not this a well-known fact, but in the early James Bond novels, he drank lemon drop martinis for the movies. Okay. Yeah. For, wow. Because well, here's my question, Lee, here's my question. Masculine. Here's my question on a scale of one to 10. 10 being you tell your children to the devil. How much do you love lemon drop martinis? Uh, you're talking to a guy <laughs> who drank anything besides stronger than a Diet Coke. We know. <laughs> 55. And I'm not that much older than 55 right now. Um, and it was the lemon drop martini that pulled me into alcoholism. Did. I think I've told this story. In fact, I think I've told every story I've told you in this interview. You may have to stop. Oh, that's not true. There's few. But my 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 sister called me one day and said, "You've got to try the lemon drop martinis at Mastro's next time you go there for an anniversary or something." I said, "I don't drink." You'll start. <laughs> so we went we went to Mastro's for like my birthday or something, and my wife goes, "We should have the lemon drop martinis." I said, "You'll, you'll be drinking them. I'll be glad to drink them." So we we get the lemon drop and. Damn, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked it. And then we went off to Italy, where you know everything is uh, limoncello. Limoncello, yeah. yeah. So I just I developed this lemon alcohol thing, and I, so I have this real you know, all right, lame right. drink. But yes, I do like it. I do like it. And then we went to Italy, and it's not Italy. Excuse me. We went to uh, Portugal, and I fell in love with port. So now we've got all kinds of port in oh. the. Uh, Ooh, that sounds yeah. good. That's my next. All right, so um, your your brother Todd, um, he told us the uncle the uncle Stan story. Yes, uh, it's, true. Leave, it's true. It's true. Any important facts out that maybe you want to? Uh, yes, yes, he did. Please. Oh, got the timeline messed up. Oh, the story is true. You know, we did go there, and my uncle did bring out this you know ancient swill for us to drink. <laughs> um, but at that time, I was not drinking alcohol at all, ever. I mean, the, the strongest right. drink I ever had was Diet Coke. So they bring me this, whatever it was, 50-year-old McAllen, whatever, and I, I drank it. Up. <laughs> no, thank you. And then we're like, what? That was $500. Why just bring me a glass of Robitussin? I mean, this stuff is awesome. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, I'm crazy. Do you realize what this is? I said, yes, it's undrinkable. It's like, it's awful. Drinkable. Do we have You're hurting my diet? chest. Uncle Stan, do you have any 50-year-old Diet Coke I can drink? So, and my brother is like, uh, and my brother-in-law is like, uh, neighbors of Stan. Uh, people I didn't even know. Uh, so, all right, so I, had not, I wasn't drinking at all. Flash forward 20 years. I mean, that's how long ago it was. Wow. And 20 years later. Um, I'm now drinking bourbon. You know, it's like my wife was saying, I, I, I'm a Kentucky Colonel. And every time I'm invited back to Kentucky for something, they always give me bourbon, but offer me bourbon. And I said, no, thank you. I don't drink. So my bottles of bourbon go to Jeffrey Deaver or somebody else who's there. My wife got really pissed at me. You may not be the one who drinks, but I drink, especially because I'm married to you. Take the fucking bourbon. You. <laughs> my brother's like, take the bourbon. So I started bringing the bourbon home when they gave me bourbon. But now that I started drinking a little bit, last time we went there, we went to a, um, a fancy place that had fancy bourbon. I went, ooh, this is good. This is yeah. it's like, <laughs> so it's like, mm -hmm. now I might go back to Stan's house and try it. Maybe now I'd appreciate it. Yeah, but exactly. It'd be fair to me at the time to go from basically a guy who was drinking tap water to drinking, <laughs> you know, yeah. that I did not appreciate anything about it. I wasn't like, ah, give me a lemon drop of Jamie's, Dan. <laughs> anyway, Todd was imitating me. So, so, so Todd yeah, told us perfect, that story. That's and, a perfect and, imitation of Todd. It was. That was a good was. He did a good imitation of you doing an imitation, you know, of him doing an imitation of you. <laughs> so, um, so, so we all had a really good laugh at that story. Uh, we, we actually even put a clip out of it because it was. Probably oh, believe me. I know. <laughs> my lawyers know. The, uh, yeah, we're gonna even though we, we received the letter, letter you, got, you know, haven't yeah, been we, served. We yet. got that letter, but we're not gonna comply the, with the it. YouTube pull down the whole. Yeah. You, you, you're well aware of all that. Yeah. yeah, it's going up on other places now. But here's your chance now. Um, what's the most embarrassing thing Todd did, but was never caught or punished for doing? Ooh, 
Ooh, how bad a brother do I want to be? No, no, yes. You're a good brother. I wasn't even here us. for the answer. <laughs> Ella, Ella came in to, to ask to hear this. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a better man than Todd. I'm, no, I'm not sure. no, no, don't be. You're a better I'm man. You will tell the story. I'm not going to talk about the time he had a, a fly in his ear and couldn't understand what all the buzzing was. And <laughs> Okay. All right. Thought he had a brain tumor. I won't talk about that. <laughs> I won't talk about the time his hair was blue for several years. Oh, several years. Is there a photo of this? Um, no, no, I won't. The stories I have to tell are not are not fit for the public, <laughs> fit for making fun of him and the family. But <laughs> we'll see at the next book conference. We want to hear about yeah. it. No, I I don't want to get into trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. His wife you... is really tough. And Todd might take it in stride, but his wife would kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is, folks. Lee is the better man. Oof. All right. And, and, and to be fair to Todd, unlike me, Todd has to have this veneer of respectability because he runs a graduate creative writing program. Mm. If I reveal to his students the really dumb stuff he's done, it will undercut his authority as a mentor and a teacher. Right. Are, are they not allowed to follow him on Twitter? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. What's it like when your your professor tells everyone around to eat a bowl of dicks? Cool. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's the cool one. <laughs> You're making Sean joke. Yeah. Uh, and my first question is really easy. Did uh, did John Sanford challenge you to a duel, or did you at least have to fight him to use prey in your title? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh -oh. John Sanford has been wonderful. You have to understand, I am a huge, huge John Sanford fan. Us too. I love the Virgil Flowers novels. I love the Lucas Davenport novels. I've gone up to him as a big geek at Thriller Fest. I, I think you're great. Okay. <laughs> I mean, really great. Yeah, thank you. Great. Okay, go away. <laughs> um, so we, I published these books by... John Sanford, not John Sanford right. of Prey. Yeah. Right? And John Sanford had that name. Uh, let me, let me, the, the pre, how do, I, how do I separate this guy? The John, the old John Sanford yep. had been using that name before the current John Sanford was writing books. You know, he, he wrote books through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. He wow. died 90 years old in the, I think the early 90s. But in case, any case, he'd been writing them for a long time established literary fiction writer and that's his name if you look up john sanford on on amazon his books come up as well as the new john sanford does well some people when they were searching for the new john sanford's latest book also got the old our reprints the old john sanford books <laughs> coming up and whoever runs john sanford's twitter page i don't think it's john sanford started no, no complaining about you know somebody was out there trying to horn in on john sanford's popularity and oh. amazon and put a stop to this blatant demo. whoa whoa, whoa. no one's trying to you know leverage you he exists he's <laughs> a real person yeah he, he's really there he was writing books before you you were the second john sanford <laughs> the first and he has a you know, strong literary reputa reputation and got reviewed by the new york times la times he's, he's a great writer and, and so whoever ran the website conceded uh, the Twitter page conceded that, but then said, yeah, but you put contemporary covers on his books. Well, yeah, we're supposed to use a cover from 1930, <laughs> 2021. A 10. We, we, we don't say he's you. I mean, his, his bio and everything is there on the, on the product page. So we had that little tiff and, and then, you know, I think he apologized and that, that disappeared. <laughs> so then, my publisher came up with, you know, we had this title Gated Prey. It made sense because the people are behind gates, but they're still prey. It was the perfect title. Yeah. Some nobody on Twitter two days ago copies me and John Sanford going, Lee Goldberg's trying to you know, rip you off. Like, oh, God. No. What? <laughs> He's trying to steal your series. No, it just is the best title publisher I could come up with. And because they're gated, see, and and they're prey. So they're they're gated prey. And you, you know. He's not the first to use prey in a title. There was Michael Crichton's prey. There's yeah. the Birds of Prey. There's yeah. uh, Bernard Cornwell Sharp's prey. There's, oh. I mean, there's oh, that's a right. ton of over there. books yeah. with the word prey in it. So 
to be fair, I have to hand it to John Sanford. He, he stepped into the conversation to say, um, you know, no one can copyright a title. And let's face it, um, I, I've, I've done the same thing. He, he had a book called, um, the hell was it called? Uh, a Stormfront. Yeah, yeah, I had a book, a Virgil Flowers book called Stormfront that came out the same year as three other books called Stormfront. <laughs> and there were 15 others before. So it's, but well, there I heard Bill, I heard Billy Joel was really upset about that. Because <laughs> he had an album called Stormfront. It's going to happen. I mean, it's just, I, I try very yeah. hard in most cases to come up with titles that no one's used. And I don't think that there is another book out there called Gated Prey. There are other books called Prey, but it means that John can't use Gated now. I mean, he could. I'm not going to be upset. But, mm, maybe he is. Um, but we had the book The Chase. Janet and I had a book called The Chase come out the same year that Daniel Silva had a book called The Chase come out. Oof. It's, it's Darn near impossible. Yeah. It happens. It just... So no duel. Okay. I'm bummed by that a little bit. No, no duel. No duel. All right. But I, but I imagine he's thinking, oh, come on. First, he uses my name. <laughs> then he uses my series title. What kind of horrible person is Lee Goldberg? He's like single white female. The movie Single White Female. But it's oh, my gosh. Really all the back is what he is. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Who besides the three of us is on your definitely do not let in list at the gate in your gay community. Why do I have to be on that list? Yeah, well, no, he That's knows you. You're not on the list. Um, I, have, I do have a fan, oddly enough, who is a stalker. What? Lee Goldberg yeah. has a stalker. That's Are you sweet. sure they're stalking the right Lee Goldberg? Yeah, it could be a weatherman. There is a woman who is stalking me. <laughs> and I've warned some bookstores about her. And they went, oh, no, we know she's here. Oh wow! I mean, she was here. We opened. She's waiting for you. Oh, God. <laughs> oh like man. she'll have her picture taken with me, right? A selfie and grab my butt. And 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 my wife and daughter will be at some of these events. And and here's the thing about my wife and daughter: they find it funny. Funny, right? Of course they do. <laughs> my, my daughter's like, I'll come to the signing if the stalker's going to be there. <laughs> she grab your butt. <laughs> It's like it's so funny to see someone who thinks you're desirable. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's brutal. Married to me. It's what brutal. are you saying? You know, this, this woman is like she doesn't care that my wife and daughter are there. It's like as far as she's concerned. And actually, I have a funny story about Todd with this woman. So anyway, here we go. You know, wants to know, can I have a picture of your house? I'm just curious what your house looks like. Or, um, what what's your car look like? I see you got a new car. I'd love to see the car. You know, like, and <laughs> she sends me some stuff. And, and she sent me one email once that seemed innocent enough. I can't remember what it was. Like, you know, you mentioned you like barbecue. Do you like, I can't remember what it was, but she sent me some weird email. And I sent it to Todd and I said, Todd, what do you think this email means? And Todd wrote back, it means, hi, Lee, I would like to come to your house, kill your wife, take her skin, put it on myself and come in the shower and surprise you. And he went into this whole like thing. <laughs> accidentally copied her on it oh holy shit (laughs) that's epic (laughs) see that's what you should have told me before i haven't heard from the stalker since but i'm terrified (laughs) but todd has (laughs) oh my god that's amazing santa todd cc'd her like idiot Oh my gosh, that's, <laughs> that's a great that's story. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so Todd calls you up and says, Hey Lee, let's write a book together. It never happened. What's the subject matter? Let's just It'll never it. happen. What's... Here's the thing about my Todd. My Todd. Hey Lee, Lee, I, wa- I want to write a book with you, Lee. <laughs> my, my brother Todd considers himself a serious literary writer. Sure. He considers me a pornographer of questionable. <laughs> what? His books have depth. My books have enviable transparency. <laughs> He's just, I, I'm being I'm being hard. My, my brother's been wonderfully supportive of me and my work, but we have very different voices. I mean, I've looked at his books and said, I thought page 19 was great. I could cut it down to three lines. <laughs> I would love to be. I would love to listen to your phone calls. <laughs> we have long phone calls, long phone calls about some stuff. I mean, Todd 
is a more verbose writer than me. He's more literary. And I think he would argue I'm too bare bones at times. Um, so we have a different taste. approach to writing. So it would be fascinating. Uh, we, yeah. same, we, we actually, in all honesty, joking aside, he and I have very long discussions about the craft and our different approaches to it and what's more commercial, what's less commercial, what's uh, whatever. And he has different priorities than me, different ways of telling stories. He, he reads different things than I read. I couldn't write what Todd writes. And I don't think he could write what I write. And, and the key to a successful collaboration is finding that middle ground. And it was perfect for Janet Ivanovich and I, mm. because we both brought something special to the party, but we were able to come up with a voice that was neither hers nor mine. It was Leovich, Ivano <laughs> <laughs> Lee, whatever, Ivano Lee. It was, I wasn't trying to imitate her. She wasn't trying to imitate me. And I think it's why the, the authors who followed us to do the Fox on Hair books have not been able to capture that same voice. They've had to come up with a different voice because it was very unique to our personalities and the way we approach telling stories. Hmm. All right. Well, my turn. And I'm going to give you one more opportunity here. The trash, Todd. You're really <laughs> trying to buy, drive this schism between me and my brother. No, no, no. Without adding any more hints to this question, what is the deal with your brother? <laughs> What is the deal? That's mm -hmm. the question. So the story about how he he became a published author is very interesting. He uh, so he's writing these stories for magazines that only paid in copies of of their magazines, <laughs> and a big time agent read one of his short stories and said, "Ah, oh, I love your short story. Do you have a novel?" Todd said, "Yes, yes. I'm just finishing up the first draft and you know honing it." And they said, "Great. When you're done with it, can you send it to me?" He said, "Sure." Todd didn't have a novel. He quickly. Banged one out, big liar cheat, and the agent loved it and sold it to I think it was MTV Books, which was a uh, imprint of I want to say Penguin or something. I can't remember who the publisher was, but it was a it was a big publisher. This is a new imprint of theirs, and he got I think a, a ten thousand dollar advance, which wasn't very big, and it was a paperback printing, and he sold like I don't know four copies. <laughs> but um, twenty five hundred dollars a copy. That's pretty. Expensive. That's pretty good. <laughs> cash but, out on that one. one. One of the copies, I think, through an uh, the LA agent of of his agency, landed on the on the desk of Harvey Weinstein. You know, who went on to become, what? you know, the Harvey Weinstein at the time. Yeah, one of the movie rights. In fact, the producers of American Beauty and a bunch of other. Big studio, uh, big movies wanted the movie rights to Todd's book before it even came out. Dang. And Todd's agent, as a you know, Harvey Weinstein, or her, either himself or his representative, called him and said, What would it take to, to get these others out of the bidding and, and give us the book? And Todd's agent said, Just to, just to blow smoke, said a million dollars cash on the barrel head. And they said, Done. What? So Todd calls me up. I'm going to do my imitation of Todd. Hey, Lee. I just sold my book for a million dollars. And I just hasn't even come out yet. It's so easy. I don't know why you've worked so hard to write a book when all you gotta do is type and they give you a check for a million dollars. It's it's a credit to me that I did not go to his house that day and stab him over the head with a fucking shovel and <laughs> bury him in a shallow grave in his own backyard. I love. I don't know why you work so hard. It's so easy. You just write the book and they give you a million dollars. Right out the gate, million dollar check, huh? Fucking God. So, so wow. he writes his second book and he sells it to, I think it was Soho, or whatever, for even less money than the previous <laughs> book. They weren't impressed by the Hollywood money. And he sells, I think, three copies, two of them to me. And I think, okay. Now my brother will learn. Oh, and no movie interest at all. Now my brother will learn some humility. He'll learn what it's really like. Yeah, he got the million dollars, but he was a one-trick pony, one-hit wonder, flash in the pan. He got nominated for the LA Times Book Prize for that <laughs> goddamn book. <laughs> I don't know why you work so hard. You get a million dollars in the biggest book prize in the nation. Why do you work so hard, Lee? <laughs> It's a credit to me, I think, 
that I didn't go to his house, put a gun in his fucking mouth and <laughs> blow his head off. He then writes or sells a collection of short stories to the University of God Knows Where Press. And I think he had to pay them. I don't know they even got an advance for that. He sold two copies of that one. I didn't buy one because at this point I'm resenting the hell of my brother and not giving him any of my money. So he sold one to his mother-in-law and one to the executive producer of Justified. What? Bought it as a pilot for his next series. What horse, pull that horseshoe out of his ass. You write a short story and it becomes a TV series. But it didn't become a TV series. Thank God. But then CBS bought it for a TV. Yeah. I don't know why you work so hard. You buy something, you write something, it becomes two TV shows. CBS didn't make it. Amazon decides they're going to do 13 episodes. That didn't happen. And now, I won't blow it, but now giant new producers wants to do it. One success after another. God bless him. And the thing is, I love my brother and he deserves all of his success. And he's got incredible talent, but it does take an enormous amount of patience to deal with it. You know, you couldn't have given us a better ending to that uh, question. Oh my gosh. That was, that was the greatest ever. Thank you very much. I don't even know if I should ask my last two. Oh, anyway, <laughs> you have to. All right. Well, number two then. Who's more frightening, the serial killer clown from Stephen King's book It, or that creepy ass clown haunting restaurants in Palm Springs that I oh, saw a picture of? Once? It's it's the clown in Palm Springs. <laughs> Palm Springs is in an alternate universe. Todd has found the perfect place to live. He will never run out of stories living in yeah. Palm Springs. <laughs> Shit. He's the youngest guy there. I mean, um, <laughs> perfect place for him. I mean, I couldn't understand why a guy his age would want to be living there. Now I know it's 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 for the it's material. You've heard of Hellmouth, I think, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. So it's like that down there, except it's like hell butt, like a giant constant colonoscopy for old people. <laughs> <laughs> that metaphor made no sense. This is oh, why I don't what? use metaphors in my writing. Because I'm lousy at it. I don't know. I'm laughing. I liked it. All right. Here's the last question of the day. I turned on my TV last night. Not, I didn't really, but I just, let's say I did. And I was completely shocked to see that every single channel was running a story on author Lee Goldberg, arrested for the crime of what? Fratricide. There it is. After that last story. After that last one. That's where I was going. But he got the wrong Lee Goldberg. Yes. Exactly. Did I get that term right? When you kill your brother, Fratter? Fratter side. That's right. We we joke, but I mean, honest to God, I I am the older brother and I am so proud of him. And I take such pleasure. I'm often jealous of him. But, you know, because, and again, I'm going to get sappy sweet here, but we grew up essentially without a father and i think in many ways although todd and i are brothers we have in some ways a father-son relationship because i'm so much older than him and Mm -hmm. we took care of him when he was growing up and and so i look upon him with great fatherly pride i'm so thrilled he's doing so well and i'm also so glad that he's giving back he has introduced so many new writers to the world through his graduate creative writing program i mean he's given back in such a big way. And I love that I'm able, when I'm having trouble writing, when I have a problem, I can call him up at two in the morning and he's there mm-hmm. and we can hash it out. That's you know, awesome. He he and I came up with this the title for my next book together at two o'clock in the morning when I couldn't come up with a decent title for the book. Just Which is John Sanford's books. Just, just no, no. The, the fourth <laughs> title of my book is actually come to think of it, ripped off from Todd. Uh-oh. Oh. No, you know, his, the Low Desert? His big desert. book was Gangsterland, which is yeah. the hitman um, hiding yeah, out as yeah. a rabbi in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and that was the short story, by the way, that became the, t- the TV series that hasn't happened yet. The title for the fourth Eve Ronan novel is Movie Land, one word. Movie go. Land. Here we go, folks. And, uh, was, actually, it was a line in the book, but it, it took me a while to come up with it. And it wasn't until I was working with Todd trying to get to the essence of what the, the book was that I came up with that, that title. But, you know, he's always pushing me like I, I never noticed that I have 
themes to my work, the themes that keep repeating. I, I now realize it's not themes, it's creative laziness, but you know, things <laughs> I keep exploring. But then I was able to show Todd, he keeps repeating the same themes as well. Mm-hmm. Relationship Smart, with Bob, not hard, yeah. And uh, that he keep, we keep exploring in the same way that John Irving keeps exploring circuses, bears, and transvestites. We keep exploring the same, you know, similar stuff. Chris, that's your next title, right? That, <laughs> yes, that's my next book. <laughs> well, we love the we love the Goldberg uh, brothers. We love you, Lee. I mean, you you are always welcome on this show, dude. You are a uh, I feel you are so much I fun, insightful. I haven't lived up to my my potential in this interview. I didn't have great stuff to tell about Todd. I oh I no, she did. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Really, right? If if all we did was p- play your impression of your wife on a loop, I think that we would have uh, a winning. <laughs> well, so, but I, but, you know, we'll I a couple books. When I imitate Todd, I do this. Yeah. <laughs> Todd has a thyroid issue that makes his eyes bulge out a little bit. <laughs> he does the squeaky voice for me, but I do Todd Lee. Put <laughs> in there. With Todd's thyroid weird, problems. So you get that round feature. And a hoodie to really do Todd. I saw Jason Isbell last night. Okay, Todd, <laughs> Jason Isbell. Yeah, I know. But folks, G- Gator Prey, Eve Ronin, we love the character. We love Ooh. Lee. You're a fantastic author. Everybody Thanks for coming on the show. It. Raise a glass for you, sir. Thank you. Fine China. That's right. Drink up. Boys, mm-hmm. Lee Goldberg. He's the three-peater. Mm. He's got his uh, latest... Eve Ronan book out, Gated Prey. Yeah. There's lemon drops in it. There's what? fetal abduction in it. There's what? some shootouts in it. I loved it. <laughs> I know you guys loved it. Let's raise a glass. Lee, thanks for coming on the show. You're an awesome guest. Always the best, right. boy. Cheers, Cheers brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it you? It is you. Me. It's me. And here we are. Right. The outro for Lee Goldberg's Gated Prey. And Chris has got to go night night. Here yes, we go. Do. In three, two, and game. So um, we want to thank John Sanford for coming on talking about Gated Prey. Fuck. It's Lee Goldberg. What? There's a lawsuit. Hey, there. Anyway, all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and meow.